It's an afternoon in July 1943. We're in the old Yivo building outside the Vilna Ghetto in German-occupied Lithuania. Inside are a group of Jewish slave laborers, including Schmerka Kaczerginski, 34 years old, short, receded hairline, a bit cross-eyed. He's winding down work for the day when he's approached by his girlfriend, Rachel Krinsky. From The Book Smugglers by David Fishman, quote, Are you still going to carry stuff today? She asked. Schmerka replied with his typical buoyant enthusiasm. Of course. End quote. The stuff Schmerka was carrying, or perhaps more accurately smuggling, would be books. Not just books, though. Rare and treasured books from Jewish authors being collected and then, for the most part, destroyed by the Nazi Einsatzstab Reichsleiter Rosenberg Task Force. Quote, Schmerka wrapped an old embroidered Torah cover around his torso. Once it was snug, he snuck four little books inside his new girdle. Old rarities published in Venice, Salonika, Amsterdam, and Krakow. Another tiny Torah cover swaddled him like a diaper. He buckled his belt and put on his shirt and jacket. He was ready to leave for the Vilna ghetto gate. End quote. Ironically, the ghetto in Vilna, now Vilnius in Lithuania, was a safer place for such books than the outside. At least there, they could be hidden away. Schmerk and his colleagues, including Rachela and his best friend and fellow poet, Abraham Sutzkever, had been slowly moving books into the ghetto, out of the hands of the Nazis, for some time. In many instances, they risked their lives to do it, like this July afternoon when Schmerka approached the line headed into the ghetto. Quote, Word came back from the front of the line. SS Oberscharfuhrer Bruno Kittel was personally inspecting people at the gate. Kittel, young, tall, dark, and handsome, was a trained musician and a natural, cool-headed murderer. He sometimes entered the ghetto to shoot inmates for sport. He'd stop someone on the street, offer the person a cigarette, and ask, do you want fire? When the person nodded, he'd take out his pistol and shoot him in the head. With Kittel present, the Lithuanian guards and Jewish ghetto police were more thorough than usual. End quote. Schmerka's coat was clearly puffed up by the books not so inconspicuously hidden inside. He wouldn't be able to explain them away, and Kittel had murdered other inmates for much less than what he was now attempting. Quote, Schmerka wouldn't unload. He knew it wouldn't save him. Even if he left the Hebrew books and Torah covers lying on the street, the Germans would trace them back to his team. So, Schmerka took his chances and tried to prepare himself. He began to tremble. As the line grew, it blocked traffic. Trolleys honked their horns. Non-Jewish pedestrians gathered across the street to watch the spectacle. Suddenly, voices called back into the crowd. He went inside the ghetto. Let's go faster. End quote. Bruno Kittel had, for whatever reason, decided to up and walk away from the job of body searches. He embarked instead on a pleasant stroll through the ghetto. Quote, the line surged forward. The guards turned to see where he was headed, making no effort to stop the rushing crowd. As Schmerka passed through the gate, the books pressed tightly against him. He heard jealous voices call out in his direction. Some people have all the luck. Hi, 
I'm Nate Nelson. Welcome to On the Holocaust, a podcast from Yad Vashem, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center. Shmeka Kaczyginski was a very lively and fun person, which is surprising because he grew up as an orphan. David Fishman is a professor of Jewish history at the Jewish Theological Seminary of America and the author of The Book Smugglers. He grew uh, from a very poor and sick boy to become a poet and very jovial, very lively. Vilna was fertile ground for a young, budding artist. On the one hand, Vilna was not the largest Jewish community in Poland. It was actually number four. Um, but it had this amazing intellectual Jewish intellectual tradition of learning, of scholarship, of uh, literature and reading. Um, and it did have the nickname Yerushalayim Dilita, the Jerusalem of Lithuania, which was very evocative. That This was a place in some ways very special, even holy. Vilna was home to such academic and cultural institutions as the Strashtun Public Library, whose collection included over 5,000 rare Hebrew and Yiddish manuscripts from across four centuries in Europe. The Yiddish Scientific Institute, YIVO, also called the city home. Quote, the YIVO Institute's organizational meetings were held in Berlin, but the resonance and centrality of Vilna virtually forced the founders to choose the city as its headquarters. End quote. It was in this vibrant city that a group of young writers got together, calling themselves Young Vilna, or in the Yiddish pronunciation, Jung Vilna. Jung Vilna was a rather eclectic group of young poets, storytellers, and by the way, also um, a few artists, painters, and uh, sculptors, men and women. Uh, uh, each had a different style, a different approach, uh, though I think, generally speaking, I could say they were really attracted to this tension between oldness and newness, meaning Vilna is an old Jewish community, uh, and uh, the name Jung Vilna meant n innovation within the context of an old tradition. All of them were attracted to experimentation in literature, and they became very popular. Uh, literature played a very central role in Jewish life in, in, in Vilna. In other words, they're not on the peripheries of the community, some kind of closed group, uh, but uh, their public events attracted hundreds of people, and they were well-known. In a sense, they were like celebrities uh, in the Vilna Jewish community. Schmerka joined up with young Vilna, where he first met the young man who would later become his best friend, Abraham Sutzkever. Sutzkever had also an unusual childhood in that his um, family fled the front in World War I, and fled into inner Russia into the borders of Siberia. So he grew up in Siberia um, with all the snow, and it's, it's important for him because the whiteness and the snow and the trees, it really forged him into the nature poet that he became. Sutzkever's father passed away in Siberia, and the family returned to Vilna after the First World War. Soon after arrival, the nature poet decided to apply to join young Vilna. By then, there was an application process, and the existing members had to accept him. And um, Sutzkever, 
was rejected. And Schmerke said to him, Abrasha, these are times of steel, not of crystal. In other words, you're writing beautiful, exquisitely beautiful poetry like crystal, you know, about the trees, about the snow, about the sun. But these are the late 1930s. This is a time of struggle, of fighting, the rise of Nazism, the rise uh, of the, the Soviet Union. And you don't deal with that. So it, 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 paradoxically, you know, the first interactions they had was of, of one poet being rejected by the other. But... Uh, Another year later, Sutskara was admitted into the group, and they became, even though they're sort of in many ways opposites in their politics, in their personality, they became, uh, you know, very tight and the best of friends. Schmerke was the leader of the popular young Vilna organizing and producing their work, while Sutskever quickly became its most renowned member, a bona fide celebrity in the Yiddish literary community. But these golden years were cut short when, in 1939, just as the two friends were leaving behind young adulthood and entering into their 30s, the Nazis invaded Poland. On June 22, 1941, the Germans invaded the USSR in breach of their non-aggression pact. They entered Vilna on June 24th. Approximately 60,000 Jews were living in Vilna at the time. Following the occupation, German persecution and murder of Jews began almost immediately. In July, thousands of Jewish men were taken forcefully and murdered at a large mass murder pit at Ponar Forest. In September, two ghettos were established into which the Jews of Vilna and the surrounding areas were forced to move. Over the course of the following months, the Germans, with the assistance of Lithuanian units, forcefully took tens of thousands of Jews to be murdered. Among them were Schmerka and his wife. It only took about a week for him to sense that this ghetto was a death trap. And they, and, uh, they, and they decided they have to leave. They came up with a plan. They joined a work brigade, which was set out of the ghetto on assignment. When nobody was looking, they slipped away, fleeing to a Lithuanian friend's house in the forests outside of town. On the way, a very poignant thing happened, which is, his young wife turned to him and said, you know, Schmerke, you have such a thick Jewish accent. You'd easily be detected. My Polish, she says, is perfect. Uh, no one would ever, and I don't look Jewish, so I can easily pass. But So if not for you, I could pass. And he was so um, hurt and infuriated by that comment that he stopped dead in his tracks. Remember, they're on the outskirts of town, basically in a forest. And, he's, and he just turns around and leaves her and uh, goes back in the direction of the city of Vilna. A year into their marriage, Schmerka and his wife separated. She went into hiding, but was later found and killed. The only way he found to survive outside the ghetto was to wander around small towns, different from town to town in the region of uh, Vilna, not in Vilna itself, but in small, uh, and to disguise himself as a Polish deaf mute, someone who couldn't talk. And uh, that's the important thing, who couldn't talk, because he did have a strong Jewish accent in his Polish. And if he had opened his mouth, everybody would 
would recognize immediately that he was Jewish. So he actually got false identity papers that said he was a so former Polish soldier who had been, you know, had a uh, an injury in 1939 and was unable to hear and unable to speak. And he would go around uh, wandering and just and uh, uh, that way getting odd jobs, but never talking. Sometimes in the middle of the night, he'd just go out into a, a field or a forest just to howl, just to, just to hear his own voice. Meanwhile, Schmerka's old friend was back in the ghetto. Sutzkefer didn't have the option to escape as he had a mother and a wife to look after. He has um, a lot of close calls. The first months of the ghetto are the period of the greatest bloodletting. From September 41 till December 41, the population of the Vilna ghetto went down from 40,000 to 20,000. In other words, half of the original inhabitants of the ghetto were murdered in uh, four months from September till December. On multiple occasions, Sutzkefer came within a hair's width of death, like one instance, a German raid on the ghetto. He literally hid in a mortuary in the in the facility of the Chevra uh, Kadisha of the Jewish Burial Society. He hid in a casket, but when the uh, and the Germans didn't check the caskets. Hiding in a casket with soldiers running by like marauders was a relative walk in the park compared with his most present overwhelming fear. His wife had been pregnant when they entered the ghetto. Um, and then in January 1942, there was a German decree that no children were to be born in the ghetto. And this was uh, effective immediately. So, And, and uh, newborn babies you know, were murdered by the Germans, usually by some kind of poisoning, uh, something, sometimes just strangulation. There were efforts to hide newborn babies. Some were successful. Just after the German decree, Sutzkever's wife gave birth to their firstborn. Desperately, they tried to hide the child from Nazi guards. They did not succeed. Nazi guards found and murdered the infant on the spot before their parents' eyes. Quote, I wanted to swallow you, child, when I felt your tiny body cool in my fingers like a glass of warm tea. I wanted to swallow you, child, to taste the future waiting for me. Maybe you will blossom again in my veins. I am not worthy of you, though. I can't be your grave. I leave you to the summoning snow, this first respite. You'll descend now like a splinter of dusk into the darkness, bringing greetings from me to the slim shoots under the colt. By 1942, Schmerke Kaczerginski had lost a wife and Abraham Sutzkefer had lost a child, but they found purpose in what would become one of the most important tasks of their lives. It's a great paradox that the Germans, on the one hand, were murdering Jews in massive numbers, and at the, on the other hand, had a special agency that dealt with um, collecting, if one can call it that, Jewish books manuscripts, documents. Uh, I say, I don't know if you can call it collecting. Probably the more proper word is looting, stealing. Uh, the Germans uh, uh, were interested in Jewish 
cultural artifacts, treasures, um, for scholarly purposes. They had a field called uh, Judenforschung, which was the sort of Nazi science of the Jews. In other words, uh, science in the service of Nazism to prove that the Jews were depraved, were a threat uh, to the Aryan race, that uh, the source of all evil, and therefore needed to be exterminated. Ironically enough, it was in looting remarkable artworks, novels, and poetry that the Nazis sought to prove Jewish inferiority. Whatever material wasn't used towards that end could be easily burned, so this was really a win-win for them. The group in charge of this effort was called Einsatzstab Reichsleiter Rosenberg, or ERR for short. The Rosenberg squad set up its operations in Vilna, but quickly realized that there are just too many Jewish books and papers. You've got to have a sorting process to pick what to send to Germany, and everything else you'll dispose of is trash. Um, but who can do that sorting process? Well, the, the solution they came up with is you're going to have slave laborers, Jewish slave laborers, who will do the sorting. Hermann Kruk, a Jewish librarian, was forced to lead this task force. He hired other scholars, educators, and artists with an eye for what should be saved, or, in other words, sent to Germany where it would be fodder for anti-Jewish propaganda and what would be immediately destroyed. Shemerka and Abraham were among those intellectuals chosen for the task. Having to organize the destruction of rare and remarkable Jewish artifacts was its own kind of slow torture, but in the midst of it all, they managed to sneak away some moments of joy. Like when a German wasn't watching, pausing the sorting process to read a few pages of a particularly good poem or novel that they had just discovered. Or the best part of every day, when the Germans went out for lunch. The workers are left to their own devices uh, during the lunch hour, unsupervised. So the lunch hour is, is the best time of day for these slave laborers. And Schmerke is famous for getting on a table and reciting poetry or singing songs, or everybody does their own hobby, uh, whatever it may be. Uh, some of the women are knitting. Uh, the men are writing poetry. Uh, Sutskiver wrote many of his poetry sitting in that building. Relative to the experience of other Jews at the same time, sorting old books seemed like a pretty cushy job. Paper brigade, meaning the brigade made of paper, uh, which was another kind of sort of uh, humorous swipe at this group, which was, this is the brigade made of paper, meaning it's the brigade of these weak-bodied intellectuals. They don't do physical work. Right. So uh, uh, and again, this is sort of other people saying we do hard work and you folks, um, well, you're you're weaklings. You just you just push paper. Um, so there, in the case, the nickname, I guess, shows that there were some some tensions there. Uh, in other words, some sectors of of the ghetto thought what these people are doing is a waste of time and uh, sort of mocked it. Neither the paper brigade's German handlers nor the majority of Jews truly understood what was going on beneath the surface. Almost as soon as he was given the project, Hermann Kruk decided that his task force would do everything in their power to sabotage their stated mission. They would be forced to destroy many books. Indeed, there was no getting around that. 
they would have to send many to Germany, where they might be safe or perhaps not. But maybe there was a third option along the way. Slowly, methodically, Crook and his colleagues experimented with how to smuggle books out of the building and into hiding. They collaborated with non-Jewish friends who could help, but more often than not, were forced into riskier maneuvers. Broadly speaking, what they needed to do was to steal material from their work site, from the former Yibo building, and pretty much they agreed that the, the, the safest place for this material was, was back in the ghetto. The books could be hidden in caches, in the back rooms of houses or inside of bunkers. But getting it into the ghetto meant uh, crossing the ghetto gate past various types of guards who did body searches. Everything tightens up, everything stiffens up, everyone gets nervous because you could be sent to your death for the smuggling of, of the slightest thing. The risk to life wasn't lost on members like Schmerka, who, on one July afternoon in 1943, escaped execution because the SS man Bruno Kittel decided to take a leisurely stroll. It was hardly the only time that he'd attempted a move so daring. He took an old volume of the Talmud from the work site, took, uh, and instead of hiding it under his body, which was really hard to do with volumes of the Talmud are big, um, he simply took it up to the guard, and it was a German, and, and he said, you know, I work for the uh, paper brigade for the Rosenberg squad, and my German boss uh, told me to take this book into the ghetto, because the ghetto has a library, and the ghetto has a binder, a bindery at the library, and my boss said, get this volume rebound, you know, you have a bindery there in the ghetto and then bring it back to work. Uh, and the German at the gate couldn't imagine that this was totally made up, that this was a lie. Why would anybody risk their life just to say, make up a story like that? So the German actually believed him and uh, led him through. Of course, he didn't take it to a bindery. He took it to be hidden. In the case of the paper gate, there are many stories of either of, of, of bravery, but also of luck um, uh, at, at uh, the gate. Sometimes they're really very, very audacious and even just a bold-faced audacity, um, such as um, Sutskava taking a bundle of papers. Uh, well, these are rare documents, like a manuscript by the Vilna Gone or... Um, uh, uh, and he mentions other things. Uh, he goes right up to the German guard and shows the German guard, I have an authorization from my boss, from the Einsatzstabrachsleiter Rosenberg, to take in some scrap paper to the ghetto to heat in my oven. I want to, you know, it's cold at night, and my boss has permitted me to take, this is trash and scrap paper, and I'm going to, you know, I have this permit. And the guard lets him in. But, of course, it's not trash paper. It's not scrap paper. He's not going to heat his oven at night. This is all, you know, rare manuscripts. For months, Schmerka, Abraham, and their colleagues snuck away books like this. They saved old, rare literature, precious documents such as the Vilna Synagogue record book, and the personal diary of Theodor Herzl. 
Sometimes they were caught and brutally beaten for it, but they weren't killed, and so they continued on. They continued at least until a few weeks after Schmerker's close call with Bruno Kittel. That summer of 1943, beginning in August, it became clear that their task force would soon come to an end. The Vilna Ghetto is winding down. Everybody is hearing that soon the ghetto will be liquidated, means uh, dissolved, and all remaining inmates will be sent to camps or just straight to their deaths. Nobody knows for sure. And that starts to happen and in August 1943. And uh, it's quite clear that the, uh, the Germans are now uh, pushing their slave laborers to finish up. You know, there's a... Uh, uh, to, to, to tidy up the building. And, and everybody knows this is uh, the end of the paper brigade and, and probably the end of all their lives. And uh, in August, uh, yeah, they're have paying their last visits to Eva. Then they get orders they're not going to be coming back in September for work, which is a clear telltale sign. It's over. For the members of the paper brigade, two things became clear. Firstly, their days of saving books were over. Second, they were probably about to die. Schmerke Kaczaginski is this lively, um, joyous, boisterous, and fundamentally optimistic person. But he looked around in the room at all these people and realized most of them were younger than him. Schmerke was then 35 and they're all young. He's the old man in the room. And that, that's the first time they saw that Schmerke broke down in tears because he realized that, you know, these wonderful people, most of them young people, are not going to survive. He's not going to survive. Nothing, none of them are going to survive. And that in rush of emotion at that moment. And, of course, it has feedback because they had never seen uh, Schmerke cry and so that's the moment where they're all confronting okay it's over everything is over the paper brigade is over and our lives are probably over together the paper brigade prepared one last book to be saved Schmerke found in the evil building the, the uh, guest book the evil guest book you know, where VIPs would sign that they came in and maybe write some kind of dedication. And he says, you know what? Why don't we all sign with some kind of dedication uh, the guest book and we'll bury it somewhere here and this will sort of be a testament uh, uh, to, to what we did. And everybody signs and everybody writes a line or a few lines from a poem Whatever they want to say or whatever they want to write, some people are at a loss of words. They don't really know what to write. Abraham Sutzkefer, hoping it wouldn't be the last poem that he would ever write, named his entry A Prayer to the Miracle. Quote, Death is rushing, riding on a bullet head, to tear apart in me my brightest dream. One more second and I'll be lead. If you don't catch up, be a rain. Catch up, if not, you will regret a miracle must also have a moral sense. End quote. A few weeks later, the time had come. 
Quote, At 5 o'clock a.m. on September 23, SS Oberscherführer Bruno Kitzel entered the ghetto's territory with a retinue of soldiers and spoke from the balcony of the Judenrat offices, reading the order. The Vilna ghetto was hereby liquidated. Several hundred Lithuanian and Ukrainian auxiliary police invaded the ghetto and stationed themselves on all of its streets. The crowding and hysteria at the gate were unbearable. Parents lost their children. The exhausted and frightened throng walked down the long, winding Subok Street, which was lined with soldiers in full battle gear, helmets, hand grenades, loaded rifles, and machine guns. End quote. The German guards played jazz music on loudspeakers as they selected those who would be sent to labor and concentration camps in Estonia and Latvia. Members of the paper brigade were caught up, and some would be sent to their deaths. Sotskever and his wife, um, and Schmerke too, they, they were members of the FPO, of the partisan organization in the Vilna ghetto, and the, the fighting organization that planned a, a great Vilna ghetto uprising. So because they belonged to that organization, they were, um, uh, like other members, sort of whisked out of the uh, of the ghetto a few weeks before the ghetto was um, finally dissolved, uh, liquidated. Schmerka, Abraham, and his wife managed to get out of the city and made their way into the forest. Life on the run is the hardest thing. Or you're, you're, you're hiding among bushes, you're hiding among trees, uh, you've got to get food one way or another. You're very, you have to cross some bridges and some rivers, and you're always worried about getting shot or getting discovered. But um, they eventually, um, the three of them, reached territory that was under the control of uh, partisans, of fighters, uh, under the command of, uh, of the Soviets, under Soviet command. The Jews were somewhat loathed even by their Soviet counterparts, but still it was preferable to the alternative. Abraham and his wife spent months with the partisans until they were offered a way out. Sotskaber had world fame, and therefore word got back to Moscow through different channels that the poet Sotskaber was in the forest, and uh, the authorities in Moscow actually sent a plane you know, uh, for uh, to a partisan airstrip um, to pick up Sutskever and his wife and take him to Moscow to rescue him out of the fire. So Sutskever ended up uh, spending almost half a year in in Moscow, and he's one of the first ghetto inmates uh, of any kind. To, to to make it to Moscow and to be able to tell firsthand what had happened in the ghetto and what about the Nazi extermination of the Jews. Schmerka stayed behind with the fighters for a full year surviving in the forest, fighting in small skirmishes and in the summer of 1944, joining an attempt to take back the city, which was once his home and then his prison. With a group of, a mixed group of partisans, meaning Russians, Poles, Lithuanians, and Jews uh, that retook the city, that uh, that fought street by street you know, uh, combat to liberate um, 
Vilna from German occupation. And, of course, he finds the city in ruins, especially the Jewish sections, especially the former ghetto. And the he describes it as if he didn't know where he was going. Of course, he's in a daze. He's in, you know, he recognizes the streets, but there, there are no Jews, and there are lots of dead bodies on the street. It's, it's for him, an utterly surreal experience. As Schmerka fought his way through the city, he gradually approached that place he'd worked for all those months, with his friends and colleagues celebrating and attempting to save those old books. His feet just take him as if by themselves, um, to the spot of the former Yivo building. And the, the building is totally, has been bombed. It's, it's demolished. It was perhaps fitting. The ERR formed a Jewish work brigade to sort and destroy Jewish cultural artifacts. Now, the cultural artifact where they'd worked, the Yivo building, was burned to a crisp. Schmerke later wrote in his diary, quote, It was unrecognizable, a ruin. It seemed as if no other building in the entire city was as ruined as it was. End quote. The worst part, though, was that the paper brigade had hid many of the books they intended to save in the attic of that building. All were now no more than ash. And then he goes to the, into the territory of the ghetto, and he goes to the bunker, one of the hiding places where they put these books and papers. The bunker was 60 feet deep. The paper brigade stored a lot of their books down there as it seemed like the safest possible spot. When Schmerka arrived, he found the place abandoned, dark, blanketed with ash and dirt. With a flashlight, he began searching for what might remain. And he starts digging with his bare hands. And he find after digging and digging, he finds a crate. He opens it up and he sees um, papers and books. And that's his moment of, of light or of, of joy. Against the darkness of the bunker, as the flashlight grazed over, the papers almost seemed to sparkle like buried treasure. Schmerka breathed a deep sigh of relief. Everything we did wasn't wasn't a waste. It wasn't for naught. Schmerka climbed back out of the bunker. The sun was blindingly bright. It really was a quite beautiful day. He didn't quite know what to feel. Tens of thousands of Jews had died in Vilna, including his friends, colleagues, and his best friend's newborn child. So much sunshine, he wrote, but the world has never been darker for me than now. Following the war, Shmerka Katraginsky moved to Buenos Aires. In 1954, after lecturing in the city of Mendoza, he got on a plane ride back home. It crashed into a mountain shortly after takeoff, and there were no survivors. Abraham Sutzkever, his oldest, best friend, and perhaps the greatest poet of the Holocaust, received the news in his new home city of Tel Aviv. And yet even he couldn't find the words to describe his grief. Twenty-five years later, though, he memorialized his best friend in a poem titled, With Schmerka When Forests Are Burning. 
from Yiddish Songs of the Shoah by Brett Charles Werb, quote, The setting is the Lithuanian forest on a cold winter night. As a fire touched off by the enemy blazes through the woods, we see Javier Schmerka, agile as a squirrel scrambling up a tall fir tree, itself about to explode in flame. The poet explains his friend has scaled the flaming tree in order to take in so as to better remember the devastated landscape. End quote. Sutzkever's poem ends with the following passage, translated, quote, The fir tree trembles more than he, its needles already on fire. The rings have burst inside its trunk, the fir tree has expired. What is my comrade doing up there? Singing a folk-like strain. Forests are burning, tree trunks are burning, but their roots intact remain. Concludes the story of Abraham Sutzkever and Schmerka Kaczerginski. One thing to note in today's episode, the old recordings you've heard peppered in with the story are Schmerka's own music. That's his voice all the way back from 1946. If you'd like to hear more of his work, learn more about him and Sutzkever or the Paper Brigade, you can visit yadvashem.org or check out The Book Smugglers by David Fishman. This has been On the Holocaust from Yad Vashem, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center. Our program is produced by Itamar Swissa, Danny Timor, and Ron Levy. Research and content management by Jonathan Clapsaddle, Irit Dagan, and Daphne Delinko. The story you heard was written by me, Nate Nelson. Thanks for listening. Hit subscribe for more stories like this.